0: Sonia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy
1: to be here. My first thought coming onto your podcast is I'm wondering if your listeners are going to be able to tell our voices apart.
0: I didn't even
1: think about that. So maybe every once in a while we just re-identify ourselves.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For those of you wondering what that is in reference to, Sonia and I have often been told that our voices sound completely identical. Even the fact that sometimes we'll call home and leave a message and our mother can't (laughs) tell us apart. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I I did not believe people until I heard a message on the home machine when I was back home visiting and I was like I don't remember leaving that the content of the message didn't sound familiar at all <laughs> and at the end you said and by the way this is Liv if you didn't recognize me <laughs> and You're the like, whole time oh, I me
0: so I have I know there was well. um when I got a call for the job I'm in now that I was hiring and your line producer called me <laughs> What he started, like the first thing he said to me was, you do sound like completely identical. If I didn't know this was Liv that I was talking to, I'd be like thinking that it was Sonia playing a prank.
1: He probably thought I was just making it up and I was trying to get a little side hustle going, but
0: getting yes. hired into
1: another role as Liv Borgman.
0: You're just working two jobs. <laughs>
1: for well, context, we worked remotely for the same company. So I yes. could have been could been playing a prank, but Liv is real.
0: That would be, that'd be quite the con. Uh, for those of you that don't know who you are, introduce yourself and explain how we know each other and how long we've known each other. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Sonia.
1: I'm Liv's middle sister, so younger, but not the youngest. Um, I'll love to get into that in this podcast, too, hopefully, like order of birth and how that like has affected <laughs> our personalities and relationships. But um, yeah, we've grown up together our whole life. I thought that I was older than Liv for the longest time because I felt like I had no proof that she was at my birth because I didn't remember it. Um, so it was a little on into my life that I realized I was just a middle child. Um, but, yeah, we've known each other for your my entire life. Um, I don't know how glorious those years were without me. Um,
0: when you... It was only, like, less than two.
1: <laughs> well, your brain developed way faster so than me, so I'm sure you have good memories <laughs> from it or something what finally clu- quieter I don't know
0: what finally clued you in that you were younger <laughs> than me
1: um
0: I think I
1: realized that I didn't remember anything until about I was about three years old and I think that just made me realize that my memories my lack of memories of you like being around at my birth and stuff were um compiled with my lack of memories of anything before three so <laughs> just <laughs> Just a black hole, I guess um kind of clued me into maybe I didn't actually have any evidence for this, and I think also just realizing like how pissed you were at me, um I just felt like there there was a lot of conviction behind your um, your
0: denial that that you were younger. I do remember us like actually getting like verbally heated with each other <laughs> over this topic. I mean, you can imagine how annoying it is for me as an older sister I'm like that's just blasphemous that you would think that you were older than me I was like why are we even arguing about this
1: (laughs) yeah yeah I think I think it is can be fair to say um I'm middle child but maybe don't have as many street smarts as you so but but you, you took that and ran with it because I feel like there are many things you convinced me of after that that were also false that have stayed in my <laughs> repertoire of knowledge until I've realized, um, kind of sourced them back to you.
0: Yeah. So let's get into birth order. What was it like growing up the middle child with me as your older mm-hmm. sister?
1: I mean, honestly, again, going back to the fact that I don't have young memories, I can't really remember. I remember Marta coming into the picture and feeling very jealous. But I don't really remember our years before Marta. Um, she kind of um was a loud rival. Um, so I feel like I don't ever remember being the youngest. Like I really only ever remember being middle child. And honestly, I wouldn't choose it any other way. I feel like I get the perfect combination of being being able to have an older sister to look up to and also a younger sister to well, I was gonna say bossing around I try not to do that <laughs> um I
0: think she bossed is, us around
1: she bossed us around totally I I can't lie it was definitely um I was actually at the bottom of the pecking order probably <laughs> um,
0: we love you Marta <laughs> we love
1: you <laughs> We'll we'll give you your chance to come on this podcast and defend your rebuttal um but actually t- I was talking to Marty yesterday before coming on this podcast because we were just kind of pondering like what you were going to talk to us about in terms of like being siblings and stuff. <laughs> and we were wondering if we were this was just going to be like a sibling roast, like if we you were getting us <laughs> on here to single <laughs> out so just roast. Um so we were we were preparing for anything. Um but I do I do appreciate so much um having you to have like led the path forward because I do think as the middle child, even though we're not like I'm not that many years younger, it was really nice to have someone do the hard work of like carving the way. <laughs> um I feel like I'll be curious if Marta has that to say as well, having two people ahead of her to carve the way. She probably does. I feel like she said that before. But I think that that made it really nice. Like I um didn't have to reinvent the wheel for everything or i could look at your experiences see where you (laughs) failed or succeeded and um (laughs) choose my roo accordingly
0: tell me where i failed
1: (laughs) (laughs) wait is that luma in the background has has your (coughs) pardon me i think we need to introduce luma because she wasn't on the last episode (laughs)
0: Luma always, like, seemingly knows. Luma's my cat, and she's here, and you'll probably hear her meowing because she always seems to know whenever I'm in a meeting or I need some kind of, like, good audio, you know, background, and then she's annoyingly, like, making noises. So she comes (laughs) in, she comes out. Luma, you'll get your turn
1: in the spotlight.
0: Yeah, she would love that. (laughs) Um, I do think it's interesting, though, because you talk about, like – You know, me leading the way, which I definitely did in a sense, but what do you think, like, what impact did it have on our childhoods? We all were so distinctly different and we all did such different things. And I think that that honestly, I know you were, you didn't want anyone to be like you. You wanted your own space and your own realm. So, how was that and kind of like affecting Mm -hmm. who you were and being able to like have your own space? Because when you have two other siblings, you know, you're both girls, that can sometimes feel like, you know we're all getting grouped together all the time
1: yeah yeah it's definitely funny because I don't feel competitive with anybody else but I have felt deeply competitive with you and Marta especially really? less so as adults because we've kind of found our own ways but um as kids and I think I mean luckily for me I was never good in the water anyway so there was no competing <laughs> with you there.
0: well I wasn't um, a good dancer so we're good yeah. we're even Oh, well, I can barely get a lap. How is like what having our own activities like oh. important? Cause yes, I did yeah. like sure, <laughs> like I went through experiences first, but I think we all were so distinctly different. Like we weren't really going through the same experiences, you know, at least with extracurriculars.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that we each have very distinctive personalities and the things we ended up being drawn to were very distinctive. Um I think, even though the like activities I pursued were different than you, and like sure from a very young age, I was very drawn to the like throwing scarves from the dance studio and not so much to like the aquatic world <laughs> uh, but like even from a very young age, just having an older sister who is like so diligent in her like diligent in the way that you approached like all of your activities and very I I know this isn't true I'm sure that you were confident at every age but in my head as a younger sibling watching you you always portrayed a sense of confidence and control um that could just be a combination of like feeling like you needed to be put together as an older sister and like keep your emotions in check because I was like all over the place I do appreciate that like our parents didn't push us to like do the exact same thing and they gave us the opportunity to like follow more of our individualistic paths um I definitely needed my own turf I've since then tried to explore why that is but like as a young kid I think I don't know if I would have um followed in your path in some of those things but I think in my head I was like I need to be distinctive Especially because you're such a hard worker and someone who is already like doing well in the things that you were doing, that I felt like I needed to start something completely new to shine. (laughs) Oh god! Not that you're a personality, you're you're definitely like a personality that's um, not like trying to jump into the spotlight by any means. But I just like thought so much of you and wanted to shine in my own way. Sadly, I think that made me a little bit too like it, it was hard for me to like share activities like mom and dad put Marta into dance when she was um, she could not have been even in kindergarten yet. But I remember distinctly like she went to her first dance class and was like very scared to go take it. And I was supportive in the moment. I was like, oh, of course, like I don't want my little sister to be scared going to do this. So I like joined her in class and I felt very proud like being this older sister, kind of giving her the courage to take class. And then afterwards we left the class and I went up to mom and I was like, she's, she's not allowed to dance. That's my thing. Take her out of class, <laughs> <laughs> which is so terrible. But I think, um, I don't know if other, I'm really curious now if like other middle children experience this, but like, I didn't want to get like lost in the mix.
0: Hmm. Like I
1: needed to, to stand out.
0: It's so funny. <laughs> because Cause I was
1: like, I'm such a big ego. <laughs>
0: it's funny because you talk about like my confidence. I mean, we are very different people. I would say that I am a lot less emotional than you, which I think we know. Yeah. So I don't know if I was always confident in myself, but I think I was just like had more inner calm Mm
1: -hmm. all the time,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think, and I think as an adult, like I can, Recognize those things um, better now. But I also like, yeah, yeah, that's a good point.
0: It's funny because I remember distinctly we were at Spectrum. Spectrum? Right? Yeah. Yeah. On Cap Hill? Taking those like creative dance classes. Oh, oh you mean Cornish? Cornish. We were at yeah. Cornish, and I remember sitting in the hall, you'd gone into class. And mom and I are sitting next to each other. And she said, do you want to do dance or do you want to do swimming? And this was like right at the beginning of when you were starting dance. And I remember Mm -hmm. sitting there because we had gone there. I was signed up for class. I had the shoes. I had the Leo.
1: I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. And we're sitting there and she asked me this question. I remember thinking about it for like a minute, you know, because I was supposed to go into class and I was Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to do swimming. And it's just it's funny to think back on that now, because mm-hmm. right, that's like that the two paths diverged. You did dance, I did swimming, and I obviously I mean, you did swimming.
1: Also like... chose a sport with a Leo, <laughs> just a little bit slightly different fabric.
0: <laughs> <laughs> True. Wow,
1: I did not know that. How old? How old were you?
0: Oh gosh, maybe like seven.
1: And how did swimming become the other option? Is it something that you'd express interest in at that point?
0: I have no idea because I can't quite place it. I I don't remember if it was before Safe and Sound Swimming when I was doing – because we'd all done those swim lessons at Safe and Sound, which Mm -hmm. is – for those of you that are from Seattle and know, like, the China restaurant – isn't it called China? What's it? Yeah. On Lake Uh, Union – There is a pool under there and it wasn't, it was like 15 yards and we all did swim lessons in there. And then for some reason, one day they asked me if I wanted to do swim team, which I'm putting in air quotes because it wasn't like full swim team. It was like the next step for swim kids. So I don't know Mm -hmm. if it was after that, that mom and dad asked me that, or if it was before we did swim team, but I did swim team there for like a good little bit. Um, until I transitioned to like the bigger thing but I just that's such a funny moment in life that you look back on because obviously that defined both of our lives like you danced all the way through and you're still dancing and swimming was a huge part of my life and still continues to be so it's just it's funny at like let's say I was seven seven years old I'm like choosing my fate basically yeah
1: but it's amazing, like, even at such young ages that we can be so much ourselves already. Like, obviously, we grow and mature and develop with life experiences, but there can be things that we're drawn to. I mean, you've swum all the way up to this day, you know, you've been swum as a collegiate athlete, and, like, to know that at seven, that you were, like, drawn to that. Did you have your first meets with Safe and Sound? Because I feel like I have a very distinct memory of, like, going to your first ever swim meet.
0: Yes. First ever swim meet, I was the reigning age group champion there was Ooh. one year that I don't know if it was a year or one meet that I was cheated out of it and dad told me that it's okay. He knows that they like calculated the points wrong and gave it to some kid that did not deserve it. Because I did win age group eight and number of Do points. we know whose kids, <laughs> kid's name is? <it? laughs> we don't know. We don't know where he is there now. You. But dad <laughs> was like, This is like a good lesson for you. Um, you know. So I was mad because man, I worked hard, but I will say I was even more disappointed when I aged out of the noodle race because that was my shit. What was, I a noodle like, r- what was the noodle like race? You, like, jump in with noodles into the pool and you race with okay. noodles. And I remember I got there for one meet one day, and I guess I aged out. And so they did. I wasn't on the heat sheet, and I still went up to race because I was like, this has to be a mistake. But, Yeah. Oh
1: oh that my was gosh that's good so time. funny I didn't I
0: didn't, that sounds like a lot
1: of fun were kids were kids like was it chaos Were kids like hitting each other with the noodles or was it pretty
0: no but it was like lame? listen I got it down I don't remember what my technique was but I was a good kicker back then so yeah. I would I would win and strong legs that was that I love winning that. tasted great
1: for me. <laughs> I can't believe the guys out there with a false victory on the wrist belt I know. Do you, would I was, you recommend to the Mayaks that they add the noodle race?
0: Oh, absolutely! It's so fun. It also does take some kind of skill. So you know, <laughs> you can. There's a lot of different ways you can use that noodle. You got to like see how what that do you, goes. What is
1: your your recommended strategy?
0: I can't remember if I would just kick with it because I was a pretty good kicker. I don't know. I can't honestly remember. But I do remember one thing, and that was. I was so bad at breaststroke, which breaststroke actually ended up being my number one stroke that I raced um, all the way through college. But back then, I was like, it was painful how bad it was. Like You could sit there and watch me. Everyone else, it wasn't even 25 yards, would be done. I probably wouldn't even be like 10 yards out. I mean, I got nothing. Like I was going (laughs) so slow. And so it's just funny to think that then that ended up being my best stroke. What do you did. think changed? I mean, obviously or how technique. did it become a favorite
1: later? Technique, yeah.
0: Um, It's interesting because I like different phases of my life that I swam, like different strokes. Mm-hmm. I had like my backstroke phase, which was like in middle school. And then I think I just got I sick that. of it and started doing breaststroke and realized that I actually was kind of – I mean, breaststroke is a very finicky stroke, so.
1: Like your technique it has to be so on point to get the efficiency of movement through the water. Yeah. But
0: I don't know. So Those are just like some funny memories of childhood. What do you think is your like very first memory of me since you like Oh my claimed- god, I
1: love that question.
0: Oh, wow. Okay,
1: let me dig back. I definitely feel like <clears throat> I'm trying to think if I have any early memories of you in our first house on Capitol Hill, um, but some of the memories I think I have of that house are maybe more stories that have been recounted to me. For some reason, I remember like a ladybug infestation of some sort. That might have also been a dream. You're not in this, so I think those remember that. that Okay, um, but I feel like my first memory of you was probably in the new house.
0: You said your first memory was of Marta coming home. Well, I feel like,
1: <laughs> Oh my gosh. I, I, I I'll i have to dig back in my, in my mind and try and um, find a memory that was like pre Marta. But I very distinctly remember um, Marta being born and coming home. And like the, the role you took um, <laughs> so quickly of caregiver. And I feel mm-hmm. like I remember sitting on the couch with Marta, um, and you were were holding her, and I was trying to figure out how to help. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know why. I I think that, like, I think that stands out to me because that's so um, of your character to be a caregiver, and I think I just have a memory of not really. Sh- I mean, I guess I knew who Marta was, but like being kind of
0: blown away by this baby but then also like
1: watching you take this like older sister
0: role um see it's interesting for me because I I, I feel like and I don't know again if this is like seeing pictures or a dream I had but I I seriously feel like I remember going to the hospital to see you when you were born which is interesting really? why some people have feel it like they have memories from way earlier. Like what, what's different about your brain that allows certain people to have really early memories and certain people to like have I think your memory. <laughs> <laughs> um What do you yeah. remember of me being born? Well, I just for some reason I remember getting in the and to me it's like a taxi. So I don't know if it's actually a taxi or if it was like a car but I remember going with Nana and Papa to the hospital and I remember walking into the hospital room and like holding you oh wow what did I look like you're just like a baby at that point (laughs) but I mean Sonia and I are only a year and nine months apart yeah right so July August yeah (laughs) um so I would have been under two years old at that point wow
1: that's amazing i yeah i don't feel like i have memories that early i mean my other earliest memories of us are honestly like playing dress up i feel like that became a very huge which i don't think i could like pinpoint at what age but i we had quite a variety of dress up clothes um some of which were like costumes we had inherited from my aunt who um or our aunt who started the spectrum dance theater Um, but I really remember getting dressed up with you a lot, um, and playing, playing in like the dress up costumes and playing like house and like being on ships and I
0: don't know why we're on ships a lot, but, um, those memories stand out a lot. So the house that Sonia and I were born into was a different house than what Marta was born into. And we moved like a month or so maybe not even before Marta was born um, to a new house, which is the one that our parents still live in, that we grew up in for the majority of our lives. So I think it's interesting because I still have memories from that old house, but I mean, you would have been like two. So it's understandable that you might not. What
1: What stands out to you the most about the old house?
0: I just remember like being in the backyard See, and then also at that age, like you were saying, it's hard to know is that stuff that you were told that you imagined in your head or stuff that you actually remember. Um, But I I do distinctly remember when we were moving to the new house. So you would have been about two. This is probably like 2000, like fall of 2000. And I remember sitting on the blue igloo cooler that we still have. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And watching uh, Teletubbies on TV And I remember sitting there with you, we were both like eating our snacks. And I remember, I don't know if I said it to you or I just thought about it, but I was like, that's our baby sister that's in the sun. (laughs) And that's what I thought Marta was going to look like. I thought that was Marta.
1: (laughs) So in your kid brain, did you think that this, like once Marta arrived to us that she would no longer be in the show or just that?
0: No, I just, I didn't. I don't think I really thought that far ahead. I just thought that, like, that's going to be, that's Marta. I mean, it was a really cute baby. Yeah. It made sense. Like, she honestly Marta didn't was, turn out far off. She was pretty cute.
1: She was really cute. But she was a lot more violent than the baby in the sun. But she was <laughs> just as cute. <laughs> so I'm curious now, do you remember coming home from the hospital with her and her biting you?
0: Yes. I, well, oh yeah, the backseat of the car. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. I she forgot that we were in the car with them.
1: Literally just out of the womb. And already fending for her, her right to our <laughs> parents.
0: <laughs> to rule the roost.
1: <sighs> to rule the roost. Um, I I I don't remember moving. But were you excited to move neighborhoods? Like did you I Did remember. You, like,
0: understand where we were going? I understood that we were moving near Aunt Bev. And I remember the day that mom left us at Aunt Bev's, which is our aunt. And she only lived like a few blocks away from the house that my parents ended up buying. And I remember my parents, or I guess my mom and dad was at work dropping us there and us like staying there while they go went and looked at the house. So I guess actually mm-hmm. dad wasn't working or I don't know. They went to go look at the house. It was the first time they kind of seen it. I also mm-hmm. have a distinct memory of moving Aunt Bev to West Seattle. So this would have been like, I would have had to be really young then too, because I remember being in the old Volvo that we had and Aunt mm-hmm. Bev had this gigantic plant. And I remember sitting in the back seat and it was like, took up the whole car. And I just thought it was like the coolest thing ever. It was like a jungle in a car. Mm-hmm. And because we love that it to her house.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that.
0: So that's I'd probably have why
1: pretty house young is filled with plants now. Well, they're all fake. Yeah, you would have. Been, that's <laughs> fair enough. Mostly that's all all because of Lima.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about like you and how you were as a child. Talk about <laughs> oh, where. <God. laughs> where do you think? Because I would say it, like the difference between us, like you are very like creative. You've always have been. You're always imaginative. You're always kind of like in your head creating these things. Where do you feel like that came from? Or what are your memories about that from growing up?
1: Yeah, I was definitely a little bit more detached from reality than you. (laughs) I think you as a young child and as an adult, like had this very observant way about you, like you are going to sit quietly, but observe everything that's going on and like see through all of the like little social nuances and shifts in the like environment like, social environment around you and, like, be noticing of every single ambulance or police siren that's going by, like, your ears perking up. Um, For me, I was definitely a lot less, like, present in, in that world and was a lot more, like, in my head, as you said, like, creating things, like, dance choreography, stories, fake science, all sorts of, <laughs> like, inventive ideas that had no, like, grounding in, um in... In reality and science. Um, where that came from, I mean, honestly, I feel like growing up with two parents who have very like artistic inclinations. Um, our mom being painter, printmaker, and very musical, dad being very musical, and also like building things with his hands and designing things. Um, I think it was in part that, um, and in part I mean I I got to throw this in somewhere cuz I definitely am a much uh more emotional sister but I think some of those emotions have driven some creativity. I got to learn how to rein them in, but I do think it has helped um being so like in touch with emotions has helped some of my like creative inspiration. But I feel like as a kid like I mean yeah my creative creativity as a young kid came out in like creative dance classes, making up all sorts of games with you, um kind of our make believe dress up worlds. Um but it also came out in like a lot of a lot of nightmares. Like I couldn't turn my imagination off. I feel like it was very like healthy for me to find creative outlets because when I didn't, that creativity like typically would go towards like more worry or negative thoughts at night. But I think that's I think that's why like dance classes were so fun. And obviously, like dance isn't just a creative endeavor. It's also um, like an athletic, physical, technical training. Um, But the like ability to be so expressive. And as you know, from coming to like all of my college dance performances and having to sit through all of my very long performances through like middle school and high school, like um the pieces that I've choreographed for myself or the pieces that I've enjoyed dancing in the most like there is very like I'm a big large physical expression (laughs) like every single college piece I think I did started with me like running onto the stage and like leaping (laughs) or like doing something really big um but I do I do think that like I needed that because sometimes I don't know where to like put my creativity did you think of me as a creative person when we were kids
0: Hundred percent you were always like imagining things I think the conflict that we did <laughs> yeah, have I go
1: two directions
0: I know and I have a follow-up on you're know, like imagining creativity but I think yes like when we were growing up you were always imagining you're always creating you were filming or I don't know you're always like making things and the conflict that we did have is growing up is I think we misunderstood each other in the sense like I don't know. I never like. I liked the imagination, but in a much more solo way. Like I liked to Mm -hmm. just be by myself, and my imagining was like reading a book, you know, and imagining that as I went. Or I've always been like someone that enjoyed, I guess, older people than I was more. Um, so I would always love like hearing their stories or talking to them and I never, like it wasn't like I didn't like playing or make believing or anything, but I think that that would, I would get to like my max of that and I would get to an extent and then we'd have conflict because you're like, you're lame. Why don't you want to hang out with me? (laughs) Like, and luckily you have Marta who is like such a willing (laughs) companion in those adventures. but I would say, like, that's one way that we differ a lot. Yeah.
1: I was actually just going to bring that up. That was one of the first things that came to mind yesterday when Marta was like, what are you going to say about being Liv's sister tomorrow? Um, The, the memory of, like, wanting for you to, <laughs> to come um play, like, another dress-up game or something with us and you wanting to go and read in your room. But I think what, what I like see in you is you've always been a storyteller like you love stories you love psychology you love understanding people I think that's why you loved um being around adults telling their stories because they had like a life of experience and like the trials and tribulations or how they made decisions or like how they their social lives developed and I think um in books as well for you being able to you because I feel like you read a lot of like auto or biography types of things about people kind of overcoming challenges, whether it be like big physical challenges. Um, I feel like I remember reading some book about, um, was she hiking Everest? I don't know, like hikers and um, p- people who like push themselves to limits, but also like um, people who had like these great stories to tell about yeah. their lives and how they like kind of came, came into themselves. Um so I think even, and I mean, now it makes so much sense that you've like found your way to like the media world, but I think that you're, I think my creativity often was a little, has been a lot of like, um, needing to like <laughs> express myself. Um, but I like think a release, think you, a kind of a release. Yes. Kind yeah. of a release because otherwise my emotions are <laughs> bent up. Um, <laughs> But I, I think you, we're both creative. I think it just came out in misunderstandings when we were younger because I didn't understand why you'd want to go read a book because to me that sounded so boring. I needed to like go do something physical. I couldn't sit still. Like mom mm-hmm. would try and read to us, and you would sit there so intently listening because you wanted to know what happened. You wanted to understand um, how the character arc was unfolding. And I was like, I need to get out of here. Like I need to go outside. I need to like run it down. <laughs> like I literally would be like trying to get out of mom's lap. Because, like, I just I had no patience. Like, the story could wait. I needed to go discover something outdoors.
0: And then and then I would probably just read the book on my own anyway and, like, finish it. And I, it's interesting what you said about adventure because I feel like that's still what I'm drawn to. Mm-hmm. Like, number one, I – like, right now I'm on this weird kick of, like, reading people that hiked the PCT, like, their memoirs. Yeah. But I've never – it's not like I have an interest in actually doing those things myself. Like I have no interest in climbing Everest. I have no interest Mm in swimming in Antarctica or like doing any of those things. But I, for some reason always have loved those books. Like I just, I love fiction. I don't know. It's like the adventure of it, I guess. And like the physical trials of it. Um, Yeah. I don't know what draws me to it. I do. I, I have always been a nonfiction girl. I love people's stories of stuff like that. And that's honestly what like drew me to true crime and reading a lot of those kinds of things. Um, because I think it's the same realm. Like obviously it's awful and horrible. (laughs) Um, just to like loop a background on your creativity. I think it's funny that you are using creativity as a like release for all these horrible nightmares you're having. (laughs) Yeah. If you have seen any of Sonia's earliest works, some of them are comedy and they're lighthearted, but some of them are very dark. Why do you think you're creating very dark content (laughs) at a young age to escape from your very dark nightmares? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh, that's a great question. You would think that like things were off like horribly wrong in your childhood or like you had gone through horrible things. So it's just interesting, like, where were you drawing this creative inspiration for these dark topics? <laughs>
1: I know, that's such a good question. I feel like I made some um, works at a very early age with very rudimentary camera equipment. I guess that must have been like, when we were at the Hidden House, was I in middle school yet? Or was I still in elementary school?
0: Um, I think I was in going into 7th or 8th grade, so you would have been probably just starting like 6th grade. Okay.
1: Okay, so I think I started like my, picking up a camera around like the 6th grade, um, made some videos, then started making a lot of class projects, which some of the things I turned in in high school, I was surprised they didn't like check in with me after. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think like the very first like big film I made, our family um We were very lucky to be summering in Maine for the summer. My mom's, our mom's extended family, um, lives on the east coast, so we would go to Maine every summer, and our grandparents and cousins and all of us gathered in a home um, near Bar Harbor is or Seal Harbor, Um, and we stayed in this like Acadia
0: National Park. Okay,
1: thank you. Yeah, Acadia National Park, Um, and we stayed in this. Big, beautiful, old home that, of course, um, as a young child, this very, very old home that had kind of some odd features to it, um, I think inspired kind of ghost stories in my head. Um, the reason why that one, I mean, it was <laughs> it was my intention making like a documentary of a haunted house. It really turned in kind of into a parody because of how bad it was. So it was the intention was not actually to be comedic I think it um the final work is hilarious because of, of of the quality um but I think I was drawn to making that kind of like a spooky story because I felt like it it gave some stakes to it um just walking around an old house is a lot less interesting when there isn't like demons hiding in the basement or something but I I have to say and I I don't know what whether you know the, the chicken or the egg, but I do feel like you encouraged me often with like scary tales that fed into my imagination. Um, we went to Forks as young kids, and I'll never forget you told us that there were. Um, wait, is it vampires? Oh my gosh, yeah. I don't watch that movie in so long. But there were actually vampires in Forks, Washington, because um, that's oh, where Twilight was filmed. Thank you, Twilight. Uh, but so I would like believe these things and honestly I didn't need that much coaxing to believe them but um, but that was an early work I think some of my my later works that were a little bit dark I think I was trying to evoke emotion honestly I think like I wanted my viewers to have a feeling when they were watching the, the videos I was making um, there was one that I traumatized our grandmother with <laughs> about Marta out in the woods dying <laughs> because some I didn't really specify I kind of left it like creatively open-ended but essentially kind of from the way that I portrayed the shots it seemed like someone attacked her in the woods and left (laughs) her dead
0: (laughs) it's pretty horrible which is pretty horrible and I yeah I mean like okay how old we were maybe in middle school at this point we're visiting our grandparents in upstate New York they live outside Rochester they live with a bunch of woods in their backyard and Sonia goes and films this video. I think it's like winter break. We're visiting yeah. them. Yeah. Or something like it that. It was high school. Okay, high school. It was high school. Of course, um, Marta. Like Marta's an a- Marta's an actress through and through, right? Like she lucky for you, you always had an actor waiting to be in your films. Cause I yeah. no thank you. I will pass on that. But Marta was willing to. So anyway, you film this, you edit this together, and then you show it to her grandma. And what was her response? She was, oh my God,
1: she, she was horrified. She couldn't believe <laughs> that, I, that, her, that a blood relative made this. I think she thought there was psychologically something wrong with me. Um, and she, I think, I think because my work was so strong that it evoked the emotion of losing a grandchild. So it got the response I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting. I don't think she's ever watched anything I've made since, which I mean to be fair, the the shows we make are are tough to watch. But
0: yeah. Um I think she said, I never need to see that again. Oh, After and yeah. she was like, she's Thanks like Thanks for reminding me. Okay, I never need to see that again. But I will say, like, it is impressive to be in high school and you did. Like you were able to evoke, like I remember watching it and being like Oh my God, this is like horrible emotionally, which like, yeah. Okay. N- you know, that's like a weird thing to put out maybe to people like our family. It's just a weird yeah. genre, right? Yeah. And probably, yeah not well, like, probably, not, probably not what grandma expected when you said, Hey, let me show you what I filmed in the woods behind your house. <laughs> but I think it is impressive for you at that age to already be able to be evoking that. And I also remember thinking that that was like, wow, that was obviously had a very strong emotional response for everyone. And that's impressive, even though it's kind of messed up. And I don't know where this came from. Um, to be fair,
1: I don't think it would have taken much to get an emotional response from our family. But I do, I I was impressed with my, like, there was very few words or dialogue in this film. Um, and, all of my shots, like there was nothing that you could you It was all suggestive. There really was no gore. There was no like moment of her being killed or anything. Um, It was very like slow artistic shots of her going through the woods, finding these different objects that were discarded in the woods that once belonged to her and her um, touching them and basically having these flashbacks. So it was kind of told in these flashbacks of what happened to her. She went down into the woods to take a shortcut, which you should never do. (laughs) by yourself by any means um and then came across another shortcut a log across the river rather than walking around and basically the only like scary quote-unquote shot in the movie was like two seconds of our cousin standing in my grandfather's long coat and like a black hat at the end of the log being spooky just standing there and then her marta falling basically into the water but like every single shot was suggestive and at the end you like find out that she's she died and that she's been dead this whole time when we watched her walking around. But I think the moment that freaks grandma and mom and everybody out the most is like hearing the phone ringing. Basically, Marta was like trying to call for help and nobody picked up. And I think even though it was just that suggestion, it was that idea of like, my loved one needs me and I missed the most important call of my life and now she's she's gone. I think that's what like really hit the that- heart. <laughs> <laughs> but like what drove me to make that? Um I think in my head I was thinking about it less from the perspective of like, wow, this is this is like painful and cringy, and more was thinking about kind of the surprise twist of she's been dead the whole time while while we've been watching her walk through the woods and kind of this storytelling through flashbacks. I was kind of interested in playing with time um kind of the techniques of how to like show a flashback was happening um and then also yeah I kind of was enjoying making something spooky I guess because again going back to that feeling like I wanted it to have a powerful feeling and unfortunately that feeling wasn't like happy it was like
0: oh shit right well let's fast forward to now because I think it's ironic that we are both such distinctly different individuals and that we've ended up basically in the same industry and pretty okay. similar ish roles. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I honestly I love that we work in the same industry. I absolutely love that we worked at the same company together. I think I never pictured that I would get to work with you or Marta in a professional capacity. Um and it was just it's it's been so much fun because I feel like True Crime is something that I honestly you were my window into like you have always been the one with your like head up about stories or head up about like emergencies happening around us, like literally <laughs> turning around anytime like a, a ambulance runs, goes, drives by. Oh my gosh. Um, drives by to like see what's happening. Um, I think like you were always trying to share like true crime podcasts with me before I even got into the space Um, because you're so interested in like, Understanding psychology, like people's psychology and people's stories, um, and yeah, I, I found it really interesting that we've both like found our way to that. I think it's been from like we've come at it from like different angles, but I really love getting to talk with you about our, our industry now because you always have like such creative ideas and like thoughts from a different perspective that I wouldn't um, like have seen before. Like, I think oftentimes I'm thinking about um kind of the technicalities of production and storytelling as well. But I think you have your psych background um and your kind of ability to hunt out new and interesting stories, especially because you devour podcasts and books like crazy. For context, when Liv was talking about reading books as a child, like no joke, she she would devour like an entire book a night. Like I don't know anyone who reads that fast. Like the <laughs> library could not keep up with her. Um but there was like a constant pile of books strewn strewn across your floor that you'd already finished. Um, but yeah, I think it's been, it's been really cool because you have, yeah, so you kind of opened my door to like this interest in true crime. And then, I mean, I came to true crime looking for production skills, building my storytelling skills. And I mean, true crime stories, they have this emotional weight to them. They have like very high stakes often. I mean, a lot of the stories I've covered have been adjudicated at this point. Um, but even when they haven't been adjudicated or they have been in a perpetrator's in prison now, like there's definitely a very um, high stake to the investigation because someone's life is on the line. Yeah. And I think so from like a storytelling perspective, I think it has taught me a lot about like how to tell stories, but also how to under because a lot of these stories too, like there can be very controversial um natures to them either you know people on on different sides of believing who is guilty and who is not
0: um family divided
1: yeah family is divided so i think that kind of you can see a lot of like relationships either ruptured or developing through these stories and i found that fascinating
0: so when did you first
1: get into true crime podcasts
0: Well, I was just going to say for background, Sonia was working at the company that I work at now and I was looking for a job and she happened to know my boss at the time. Um, And my boss, (laughs) we love you, Lisa. Uh, My boss was looking for someone to kind of bring on and build some specific things. And so I ended up coming onto the team and my boss and I were overseeing research across a bunch of shows and Sonia was one of those shows she was working on. So that's kind of how we ended up working together, which was really cool. I also never expected for us to get to work together. Um, yeah. What? How did I get into true crime? I honestly don't know because it's Wait, not- What I have to say before you jump into that, I knew you were going to be
1: perfect for the role because it was like literally all of the things that you love coming together. It was um, the true crime element- it was being able to like manage and build databases which are like so data-minded being able to like organize really big sets of information um but also you've always had like such a good way of like i mean kind of hre-esque like being able to manage people so like when when um lisa indicated or like let me know that they were trying to hire someone for the position I was like, be so perfect at this. And I wrote her this very long message. And I was like, I have the perfect candidate for you. I have to introduce you to this person. Like they introduced me to true crime. They're the reason that I learned about like how to use Excel spreadsheets, which <laughs> I mean, you're, you're way beyond Excel spreadsheets now with your database building. But I wrote her this whole long description. And then at the end, I was like, and by the way, it's my sister. <laughs> <laughs> But That's yeah, so when did funny. you first like find yourself drawn to Instagram?
0: You know, I don't really know because I'm trying to remember like the first content I ever consumed. I'm a huge podcast girl. I love listening to podcasts because I think I'm also like a huge multitasker. And so to me, that was such like a digestible format. But it wasn't like growing up. We really like our parents don't listen to any of that stuff. They don't like talking about it. I mean, it is very... It is very dark, so I don't know how I got into it, but I've always, like, I, like you said, kind of been interested in, you know, where's that ambulance going? Where's that police car going? Understanding those kinds of things and having that natural curiosity, and I think that's what just kind of led to it. And I think for the yeah. role that I'm in now, I it was like the perfect storm of all the things that I wanted. Of course, it's morphed into something different now. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which is cool too, you know, like you're a producer and like you get to do those things. I was kind of existing at more like a five thousand foot level and I'm getting to do more of the producer things now in terms of finding stories and developing them. And Mm -hmm. I guess really where my passion lies within it, and I think we can touch on this too, because I wanted to talk about just the emotional and like sustainability component of like the true crime industry in general. But I see so much a need for, you know, just because a case has gone cold doesn't mean it's unsolvable. And I think that Mm -hmm. there we see this time and time again of this issue of jurisdiction and sharing information and just thinking forward of like what would be my dream is to be able to use these database building skills and these skills of like Mm -hmm. interconnecting information and data and people to be able to help, you know connect information that might not already be connected and be able to solve things that aren't already being solved. And there's already organizations and people out there doing that. But I think there's always need for more of that because the reality is, you know, and you know, this working with a lot of law enforcement agencies, they're very siloed from each other. Mm -hmm. And so information, and a lot of times, sometimes there's like so much ego involved in it too. It's kind of crazy. And so you don't have information being shared that could possibly solve the crime. I mean, you think about Golden State Killer, for example, there Mm -hmm. was a lack of information sharing between agencies that really hindered the solving of that. And so, I don't know, that's kind of where I see. And my data side, of course, not necessarily is that like fully my role now, but um, I get to do a bit of that. And I think it's really cool and there's a huge need for it like within the industry, or not even the industry, but just... The world of you know unsolved cases um, so, yeah, I think your
1: skill set would be so useful there, and I was just thinking because I mean there is a huge um, unlike fictional stories because these stories are real, there is like a huge emotional component to handling the reality of these really gruesome horrific deaths, whether they've been solved or not. Um, and I think being, being aware of that, um, but also understanding the importance of sharing these stories. Like, I think, I think I had this thought when I was first kind of um, imagining true crime storytelling that like, I, I worried that it was all going to be kind of Presenting the gore and not the I guess I have I have grown a deeper appreciation for telling true crime stories over my years, um, working and producing documentaries on cases that have either been solved. I i don't I, well, you've worked on cool cases. I've worked mostly on cases that've been solved. Um I think because I realized there can be such a disparity in the types of cases that get attention. I think, these stories to your point can highlight so many um, challenges or faults in the system. Um, Some cases, especially like landmark cases, like golden state killer, the grim sleeper, like literally through the investigative process and the challenges that investigators and prosecutors had to jump over um, rules, laws, technology has changed and developed. Um, Sometimes which have allowed them more successes in future cases. But like there's so many other components to this storytelling. Um, that's which actually I think is probably part of the reason that you are drawn to them because you're so drawn to like understanding how people have jumped, how people have solved problems and like gotten over some of the biggest trials and tribulations in their lives. Like I think these stories tell so much of that, like oftentimes families and loved ones who have lost their child their father their mother um that lost their loved one like the immense strength or at least just the way that they've had to learn how to move forward in their lives like there's one piece of that where it's like the family's journey the friends and families of the victims their journey um but also like the the challenges that investigators have had to overcome or some in some cases like that families and communities have had to really push and fight for their case to even get attention and the resources um, yeah. behind them to to get them solved. But I think I, I've just learned in telling these stories, like there's so much to understand about those journeys, and it's it can be very powerful because it takes a lot of it can take a lot of courage, determination, love, and support around these people to get them through these experiences i was i was gonna ask you how you have managed i guess like mental health um in working on these stories because even if we're not you know on the front lines of being the investigator while the case is unfolding though i mean again you have been working on like cool cases and cases that haven't been solved and i know those interest you quite a bit because you're interested in like helping figure out how to solve them yeah Um, but but how do you manage that Because we are taking in these experiences you know as I've been getting more experience in that field like actually talking to the people who went lived through these losses lived through these challenges lived through serial killers targeting their communities it it it's like wow this is real and you just yeah. feel a lot of empathy for those people and their lives and
0: Well, first I want to say it's like, I feel really lucky that we can share this experience because there, besides the people that I work with, I can't really go home or go to my friends or I don't, I choose not to, I guess, to talk about these things. Um, Yeah. And so it's, you know, to the, to the average person, it's not just a topic you bring up over like girls dinner. Right. And, I I get so like fascinated by the weeds and the nitty gritty of it. That's why you know I absolutely love working with Lisa because we're both – Lisa, my boss, is actually a PI, so a private investigator. And so she's very like wants to get down to like what actually happened, and I'm the same way. So it's nice to have like you in my life as well to be able to share these kinds of experiences and talk about them. But I think it is really hard because – there is a lot of very messed up things that we have to read, consume, um, case file images, crime scene images, mm, yeah, things that you know the average person is not looking at their day to day, and this is our every single day at work. Um I do feel lucky because I'm not in a producer role where I'm having to fully immerse myself in those cases all the time and I can kind of step back. But as I have done more development work, you're consuming a lot more because you have to go through so many stories to figure out, you know, to find your five to 10 or whatever. And I think, I don't know if I have an answer about the mental health aspect. I feel like I've kind of almost distanced myself in a way like I know it's real like and this is a real person's story but I think you become desensitized when you're looking at it every single day and reading about it every single day and discussing it in the ways that we discuss it from like a producer lens
1: Mm -hmm. Um, and
0: at the end of the day like it is a business and so you know discussing over what's going to rate well and what's going to be a good quote unquote story which obviously is horrible to say that way because every story is important. I every story is someone's awful reality and the people around them's awful reality of what happened. Um I definitely can say that the way that I operate in my day-to-day life is very different. Um I think I'm way more aware and concerned with everything that goes around. And I don't think that's always a healthy thing. I think I always expect the worst from everyone as a piece of it. And that's just because of what I've seen and how much I've consumed. But I will say it didn't start with like this job because I was consuming so much true crime content before. I think I always had that from the start of like consuming it. Whereas I think some people, you know, aren't as, familiar with the true crime world and their producers or, you know, whatever part of the production process they might be in. And they come in and then delve into it. And that's like definitely affects you a lot. So, I mean, the true crime world, Mm -hmm. like, you know, this is some of the hardest content to produce. You know, we all say like, this isn't a food show, you know, you call someone up and you're like, Hey, do you want to come on my cooking show? That's awesome great. That's a happy experience. We can make spaghetti together. But when you're calling someone up, that's like, Hey, your daughter was murdered and it was the worst day of your life. And you probably still have extensive trauma from that. And do you want to talk about it. Do you want to talk about it and relive that? And we're not going to pay you. (laughs) Um, That's a very different experience. Yeah, it
1: absolutely is. That's actually something I wanted to mention that I think a lot of people don't realize um, the kind of legwork that goes into producing these particular like true crime um, documentaries. Wait one moment. I'm on Libby's podcast. So it <laughs> will be <off> up. <laughs> you just go. Um, your turn is going to be soon. So you got to get ready.
0: You got to spill government secrets. Um, <laughs>
1: Um, I think one of the things that people don't always realize about the legwork that goes into making true crime documentaries, um, is the level of like trust and relationship building that needs to happen, particularly with the family and friends, of or the victim's family and friends. Um, cause you know, for asking someone to come talk about the most traumatic part of their life, um, the trust you need to build there for them to be willing to open up and share. And sometimes, you know, I I really try and take the stance of never pressuring people um, really coming to them and being um, open to listening to them, giving them time, which again, it's this like constant challenge because it's like, okay, it's also this business and we have these deadlines and we're trying to like get to a certain air date. But like at the end of the day, it's their life. It's their story. And it's important to me that they have the space to share if they want to, and not be um, sold the idea of doing it if they don't want to. Some people are eager to do it. Some people want their loved one to be remembered. Some people feel like their story hasn't been covered enough. Some people um, kind of see the strength in that they might be able to provide to others by sharing their story. Um, and some people are tired. And not just families, investigators, and prosecutors. Um, as well, or defense attorneys as well, um, we'll get uh, investigators who are, are tired of talking about the case. They I mean they live through it too, in the sense of um, how close they have to get to the case in order to solve it. But I think um, people don't always realize that because sometimes um, the producer relationship with that interviewee, especially if it's someone um, close to to the victim who was lost. Um, It can be hard to kind of fill out those boundaries between like, hey, we're building this professional relationship. I'm a producer going to interview you and you're going to come on. But we're also human beings. We have hearts. We're trying to like empathize and hear this person's story. Um, And sometimes that person needs to be listened to. So I think it's been interesting, like watching some of the producers I admire the most, um, figuring out where they can set those boundaries because sometimes it turns into them therapizing a lot with the um, victim's families. Like these families sometimes haven't been able to share their story and want to, and are still processing what happened, still feeling that pain every day and needing to talk about it. And I mean, we have producer um, colleagues who will spend hours and hours on the phone with victims families before they even get in the studio. Um, building relationship hearing their hearing where they're at hearing whatever they want to share as they're kind of like reliving the memories Um, yeah and sometimes people go through that process relive those memories and decide they don't want to come into the studio and sit down um but i do think it's hard it's a balance between being a person and being a professional when you're producing and, and getting to know these people and getting up close with um their story and what they've lived through
0: It's just, it is a, it's a really hard genre. And I think that's why, you know, I love podcasts so much as I feel like the bar that has to be reached is way lower. And, and I guess I mean this in the sense of there's so many, and this is like the reality that's we see behind the scenes of like producing something, but for a story to end up as an episode and get on TV there has to be so much criteria met for that. Hi, Ben. <laughs> it's okay. Um, and I feel like that's why I love these true crime podcasts because they're like, we're going to feature whatever story we feel like is the best story for us right now. And there's so much freedom in that. And I think the world of true crime, in the sense of, you know, docs and shows and streamers, stuff like that needs to change. And I think they're Needs to be a little bit of a catch up because the audience, I think, is willing to listen to and hear these stories that otherwise wouldn't be told. And I think that's what a lot of us as producers are passionate about telling, but that's not what gets put on air. And that's because of the criteria of these shows that are created and developed. And there's a lot of stuff legally behind the scenes too that goes on. And sometimes the margin between a show going to air and not is like losing one interviewee. And I don't think people really realize the nitty gritty of like, what can cause a story to fall out can be like one little thing. Um, And, you know, there is a lot of adjudicated stuff on air. And that's because legally, that's a lot safer to do than unadjudicated. And we don't have to go into the nitty gritty nuance of the legal pieces of that, which is something that's been really interesting for me to learn in this whole process. But I personally, I don't know about you, have a lot of passion in telling people stories that aren't solved or haven't been told or they've been ignored. Or, you know, the reality is a lot of times the people that haven't had their stories told, it's because of, you know, misuse of law enforcement investigative techniques or just not caring. Um, and a lot of times we need in a, you know, true crime doc or Um, episode format we need the law enforcement's voice right that's usually a prerequisite well if it doesn't make them look good then we can't do it and so that's why I've loved podcasts is because I feel like it eliminates a lot of that and there's way more variety of people's stories that can be told um, in that format so there's I don't know it's just it's very interesting I don't think people realize how much is goes into it behind the scenes. Um, yeah. And yeah, absolutely.
1: I think the the legal aspect for sure is something that I wasn't um, aware of until I started working on production teams. I think there can be logistical things that kind of stop a show from going into production. I think sometimes with, with podcasts, again, your point, there can be a, it's a little bit of a lower production barrier Yes. Um another thing we're working with oftentimes are very limited budgets and needing to decide how we allocate those resources in order to tell stories. And back to the point of us both being passionate about telling stories that haven't um had a chance to to see the light of day or be told yet, especially if they are still um in the investigative process, they haven't gone to court yet, someone hasn't been convicted or found not guilty, um, is that it is a business at the end of the day as yeah. well. So there's business components, which I'm not at that level. I'm down on like the producer level. So I'm not the network. I'm not the client buying these shows. But oftentimes, which I, I honestly am of the belief that um, media companies should be pushing their audiences a little bit more, especially with kind of the nuances of these crime shows and telling stories that aren't so tied up with a bow at the end because I think that's the other thing that oftentimes stories will be killed in development because yes again there are legal reasons where you can't really point fingers at somebody unless they've had a conviction and you have like a case that's closed and not out for appeal because there will be legal challenges in telling that story if something is out for appeal or hasn't been um, adjudicated yet but I think there's also an assumption that audiences Really, are only going to enjoy stories that are tied up with a nice bow at the end. There was a resolution, and there's so many stories out there where there's not a resolution. The perpetrator hasn't been found, the person's still missing, maybe the body was never found. Um, and I think those stories just don't get to see the light of day. I feel like they get to see the light of day more on podcast formats than they do with documentaries. Um, and again, like if a case is in the middle of being investigated, if there are resources being put behind it investigators aren't going to be able to talk to us about that case if it's in the process of being prepared to go to trial prosecutors and defense attorneys cannot talk to us about that case legally um, before it's wrapped so with a documentary when you're looking to find voices of people in the legal system who worked on this case people in the investigative capacity um, you might not get those voices you might be able to get family and friends on board who really want to see their case being solved um, but from that perspective of like trying to f- to bring to audiences all of these voices from different angles of this case, it's just harder harder to do. And then budgetarily, things cost money. Like um, archival yeah. resources, like being able so to like expensive. get a quick news clip of someone on air saying like this serial killer is on the loose. Who are they gonna strike next? Like, oh my god, it's so expensive. It's so expensive. So figuring out where to um put the resources on.
0: So it's like, what do you do with that? I mean, these are all the things that like go into something. And I find like this is all process that I'm learning. So I think it's it's fascinating to understand because I've been consuming this content for so long to understand why something is the way it is. Why did this doc turn out like this? Why isn't there a doc about this? I mean, the reality is if there isn't a doc about something, there's probably a reason, right? It's not just that no one thought of doing it or hasn't tried before. Um, so I don't know. It's just, it's very interesting. And there's so much that goes into it. And if you talk about the budget piece of it, like at the end of the day, you're a business, you want to make money. So how do we make sure that this you know we can't just blow unlimited budget on this doc because every piece of this does cost money. Um, so I, all very fascinating pieces of the world of true crime. I'm really curious. Can I ask you, like, how have you seen the crime space change
1: because you've been consume you've been a consumer for so long, and now you're on the production side of things and in development. Um, and I know kind of predominantly you've been consuming podcasts before working on the doc side. Uh, But like, how do you feel like you've seen the true crime space change? Because it's definitely grown in popularity as a genre.
0: It's definitely grown in popularity. Um, I guess when I started listening to stuff, that was probably like 2015, the beginning of, end of high school, beginning of college. Um, I think the world of armchair, they, I'm using air quotes again, armchair detectives, um. You know, how TikTok and Instagram and all those kinds of things has affected it. And I'm not going to say it's affected it all positively because I think it doesn't. But everyone loves to weigh in, everyone loves to be an armchair detective. In some instances, that's really been the like determining factor in cases getting solved. Um, But I think it's no longer just people reporting about it and talking about it and investigators investigating it. You have literally everyone from your cousin to your grandma that's like thinking that they have, you know, some teeth in the case and they're investigating it because of what they've seen online. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And again, sometimes that can be positive and sometimes that's important to have this cacophony of voices that's pushing a law enforcement agency to reopen the case But on the other hand, I think it can also be extremely detrimental. And there's just things just go awry. You see these Facebook groups, like things get nasty, all of a sudden, you're accusing someone that isn't related to that case, or you're the family member of a case, and you think that people are helping you. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're turned on because people think they know better than you. And Mm -hmm. so I would say that's one big way I've seen it change. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The involvement, I, people's involvement, the involvement, in the and I think obviously I'm sitting here. Yes, I work in the world of true crime, but I'm also saying, oh, I'm just in investigating and everything like this. But um, I don't know. I think that that's not. It's like social media in general, right? Like we don't, we all, we can't all hide behind our screens and put this stuff out there and expect it to have no consequence on the other people on the other end. Yeah. Um, yeah and i know law enforcement agencies in certain scenarios are it's not their favorite sometimes it is if they ask yeah, for help but sometimes it's just kind of creating noise around something that needs to be focused so yeah yeah, yeah.
1: i feel like the investigators on the grim sleeper case talked about um that even if people, you know, were sharing tips with good intentions, sometimes um, it did produce more noise for already complicated case that then, right. then they would try and go spend resources investigating um, tips that were really not useful. Right. Um, but but in, in in other cases, yeah, they have led to, to success or um, people kind of picking up a gap where investigators haven't um maybe had the time to spend on a case and now there's like yeah. thousands of people on the internet with like free hours on their hands looking into details of what they can with like open source um yeah. information one very good contemporary example but the show only murders in the building i feel like kind of completely um pokes fun a little bit at like armchair detectives um showing i mean in that case showing kind of their usefulness but also showing like. um the investigators being like, oh my gosh, not another like true crime podcaster investigating alongside, <laughs> alongside in my NYPD or something.
0: Yeah. So I think it's just to say like, do it with integrity and make sure that, you know, you have your heart in the right place. And I think just like us as producers, you have to lead with a respect for the family and, yeah, and absolutely. do that in all senses because. This isn't your story, it's their story. Um, and whether or not, you know, your intentions are in the right place, it's important to respect the family in all scenarios because you don't know what that's like if it was your loved one, you know, and all of a sudden all this stuff was happening. So yeah, um, absolutely. So I have one last question for you. And I like to always end my podcast with a question for my person. This has all been questions. Well, yes, but like, (laughs) (laughs) that's a good point. Spoken like a true producer. Um, (laughs) What has been your favorite documentary that you've watched recently? Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) Um, This, this
1: was a very sad documentary, but I was so invested in it because I just could not stop thinking about Um, the families who lost their loved ones. I think we already talked about this, but MH370, about the Malaysian flight that went down. It was on its way from Malaysia to China. And essentially before it ever landed, um, the families who were coming to pick their loved ones up from the airport in China um, were notified while they were waiting, looking at the flight board, all of a sudden seeing the plane was delayed and then it was taken off the flight board and they were gathered into a private room to be um let know that the plane that their loved one was on was missing. Um air control had no idea where it was, which is just I can't even imagine. Yeah, the been whole this, story like,
0: is just bonkers. Terrifying.
1: It's just bonkers. But essentially it's been the only commercial flight that has gone down where nothing has been found of it later. You'll watch the documentary because there have been some people who believe they've found parts of the plane, um, but they haven't really been verifiable. But that documentary just captured my attention. I swear I spent the next two days at work just researching things about like how the story could have unfolded the way it did. And without my, <laughs> I lack great technological understanding of how these like planes operate. But I was immediately jumping into that armchair detective role, trying to figure out like um, how certain things could have happened and um, of, of where the plane went down okay i don't want to like completely spoil the documentary because i do want people to go watch it because i think it's so fascinating and like i just so like well all these families yeah. it was really well done it basically takes the approach of like investigating um three different at this point all of the theories are just theories because nothing's ever been proven but investigating three different theories for what could have happened to the plane um, but there is this moment that just is probably always going to haunt me but the families were gathered in this room. They've just learned that their loved ones' plane is completely missing, um, which is like so unheard of to like literally not know where the plane is, because typically a handoff is supposed to happen between the air controllers, between um the the country's air jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. Um and that handoff never happened. But one of the women in the room, because everyone immediately, their first reaction is to call their loved ones. And the phones are bringing, bringing, nobody's picking them up. And this one woman runs up to the group and says, Oh, my God, my dad is calling. Oh, my God, my dad's calling. And like, he was on the plane. And they were like, well, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. And so she goes to pick it up. And she was like, too late, like nobody was on the other end. So she tried to call back and just never reached him. And that moment just like, haunts me so much. And is like literally the moment that i crafted in that film back in high school i know i was gonna say that's weird because it's and you you don't make it to the phone in time and because you didn't make it i mean and who knows so i spent the next two days trying to research trying to understand like is it possible for someone to have called that signal have been lost um in bouncing up to satellites and coming back down delayed or if they were calling what they have had been calling right in that instance anyways i don't have the technological background to understand the cellular workings were the plane itself and the communications um, and the pings that were happening off the plane, even though it turned off its communication box. But, but that documentary really sits with me because it was 230-something passengers in addition to two pilots. So it was a, it was a lot of people who were never seen again. Um, and it's been – was that back in 2014? It's been – Yeah, I think so been um a while now but, yeah, but I think that, that sort resonated one. with me because um yeah there's a lot of people out there and again these are not often the stories that make it to our documentaries, make it to your screens, but there's a lot of people out there who lose their loved ones and never know. They never just never answers. get closure. They yeah. never have answers, they never find the bodies, they never know what happened to their loved one. So they're just left for the rest of their lives like imagining um, the yeah. the horror of that, and I mean, there's different organizations kind of yeah. trying to work on missing persons cases in DC. There's like the Black and Missing Foundation, um, to trying to help put resources towards cases that don't often get a focus. But yeah, I think that's just sat with me.
0: And yeah. I want to be able to solve it. I I know that's a producer investigator how, but... in all of us. I think yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you so much to everyone that has. This has been a long one, so if you are still with us and you made it to the end, thank you. Hi, mom and dad, because you're probably listening to this. Hi, Marta, <laughs> we love you. We um, love you. We can't wait to have you on as well. Yeah, we'll have to do uh, one with all of us together. But Sonia, thank you so much for your time. As always, I love talking to you. I love you. Mm. You're love the best you. I middle love sister. Our that our yes. older sister could have. Um, and I just want to say thank you to everyone for continuing to listen to this podcast and for your support. It's been really fun. Like this is why I do it is because these conversations are so fun. And as much as it is enjoyable to put it out there and get to hear people's feedback, it's just as fun to get to actually like sit down with my guest and record them. So thank you. I look forward to talking to you all in the next episode. And Sonia, thank you my final thought marta
1: told me not to get mushy but i do just have to (laughs) say i could not have asked for a better older sister
0: oh yeah that's a great way to end it i'll take it (laughs) all right guys i know no other life but (laughs) it's true you you. know nothing else all right thanks guys we'll talk to you soon bye